Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of On This Lab, the film podcast where we watch movies, then take them apart to see how they tick. This week's episode is dedicated to the 1988 film Akira by Katsushiro Otomo, and we were just really, really excited to be able to talk about this truly path-breaking film and animation. We look forward to talking more about animation as the podcast goes on, uh, but this is a really important work to do before we uh, kind of like move forward with other films. We had a great time talking about Akira. It's fun, it's disturbing, it's a really, really rich text, and we hope that you guys enjoy. So without further ado, here's our take on Akira. gentlemen welcome to on the slab the movie podcast where we take a movie throw it up on the slab cut it open and see what makes it tick tonight on the slab we are going to be getting elbow deep into akira the 1988 anime movie so let's start with a little bit of context here shall we and i think that means it's time for report whatever whatever we call it i'm just gonna what do we call it silvio no i'm keeping it in i am (laughs) keeping it in god damn it all right Time of death. Okay, so Silvio, why exactly did you bring this for us to watch? Okay, so Akira is... Well, first of all, what I wanted to do was... We've been doing a lot of American movies, and... I don't know enough about a lot of European or African cinema, so one of these areas I do know a bit about, because I'll admit it, I'm a filthy weeb. I know a bit about anime, I know a little bit about Japanese cinema. So we tried to do Battle Royale last week, that didn't quite work out, but you know we'll get back to that. But I also <clears throat> wanted to go, to yeah, I also wanted to go into animated movies because that's a thing not a lot of people know about, and also. I'm an animator. That's kind of my gig. And this is kind of the cornerstone of the, you know, late 80s, early 90s um, anime boom. So, and it's just a breathtaking film. And if you want to talk about anime films, and there are a lot of anime films I want to talk about. Uh, you know, Sword of the Stranger, uh, Metropolis. There's, yeah. there's so many. But... They a lot of the this influences so many of them, and this was a blockbuster of a movie. This was, I think, a ten million dollar movie in nineteen eighty eight money, and that's just insane. So, you know, and you can really see it. So this is just, I won't say this is one of my favorite movies, but this is a movie that I can really appreciate on kind of like every level, and it's just such a thing to digest. Like it's just a, it's a feast. So, if we were going to start with anime, I wanted to start with this one, because holy shit, Akira. Yeah? Sound about right? Uh, yes, holy shit, Akira. I, I'm so glad that you suggested that we watch this, because this was, like you described, it's a feast, it's a banquet, um, it's also difficult to digest, it's a difficult film, aesthetically, and um, also plot-wise. Yeah, so Annie, this is, your, like this is your first time watching it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 
and uh, I it blew me the fuck away. Yeah, like did, I I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Did you have any expectations going into this? Like, did you know anything about Akira? No, I knew nothing, and I deliberately chose not to look it up or do any research before I watched it because I just wanted to see the work for the work itself, um, and then to maybe ask some questions about it afterwards. So, okay, yeah, it's, okay. it's astounding. But yeah, and just to go back to me for a second. I've seen this movie maybe four times in my life before I, I, I literally watched it like two hours ago. To be more accurate, more like ten minutes ago, but it's a two hour long movie. Um, but interesting thing is this is the first time I actually watched it in Japanese. Now, Annie, you watched this on Hulu, so you watched the dub, didn't you? Yeah, I did, and I watched the most recent dub as well. Yeah, so th there's three, maybe four versions of this movie floating around. There's the there's the original Japanese dub, there is the English uh, 1989 dub, and then there's a 2001 dub with Johnny Young Bosch, which is the one I think Annie listened to. Yeah. And going back to kind of the greater cultural context of the movie, though, like I said, this kind of, I don't want to say it kickstarted, and because other people... But I it think seems it, like it did. It seems like it did a lot of stuff. It, 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 it kind of kickstarted the blockbuster anime movement, but also... It was one of those big tentpole films for the idea of bringing anime over, not quite unaltered, but like deliberately keeping them as anime. Because you gotta remember, before the big anime boom of the 90s, early, late 80s, anime was only ever imported by like committee. So you have things like Speed Racer or Voltron, where like you and I remember them as being cartoons. Because they were, you know, sufficiently redubbed and re-edited and cut down. You have stuff like Power Rangers where you had the original product and then they intercut it with their own footage. Uh, Macross, for example, is actually composed of three different series that they Frankenstein together. So, Which is, like, fucking crazy. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. And I don't have really the authority to say this, but in my mind, at least, this is kind of one of the big movies that started bringing over Japanese products while giving them and letting them maintain their own identity as Japanese products. So allowing them to kind of maintain some form of artistic integrity to a certain point. I mean, even though you're dubbing over it, obviously, right? Yeah, because I mean, like, uh, Akira is, uh, it's, you know, it's set in Neo-Tokyo. There's no way to get around the Japanese-ness of it. And this is also when that, if anyone had a VHS tape back in, you know, the back in the 90s, there was like that big company just manga and it was like this eight-pointed symbol with fire behind it. Like th <laughs> that's the kind of thing and you had all these previews of all these like gritty kind of action things. It was kind of I think an attempt to sell animation to a more mature audience. And I think it's largely successful, but a lot of these survived in like bootlegs and VHS tapes and video store rentals. So it's kind of the beachhead from which anime really began to actually penetrate the West and not just be co-opted yeah. by corporations. Huh. That's really, really interesting. Yeah, and I know someone is going to come and comment and tell me how wrong I am, and please do. I actually really welcome that. I would love to know more about this. This is an area of history that I'm only passingly familiar with because I was out of the country, and I only had a couple VHS tapes with me, and this is largely apocryphal, you know, word of mouth, oral history kind of stuff. So this is actually a fascinating topic for me. So if anyone knows more, please get back to me.
Comment on our Facebook. Send us an email. Smoke signals in the sky. I don't care. I want to know more. Okay. So, Silvio, now that we've talked a little bit about our expectations, why don't you go ahead and summarize this film for us and do your best because this is a very, very complicated film with a lot of really interesting side plots going on. So, so. what you're trying to tell me is it's time for preliminary examination. Do, 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 do. Preliminary examination. Okay, so, um, what I'm not going to do in this particular instance is I, I'm not going to try and follow the exact chronology of the film. And actually, before I get into this, um, just a heads up, as we've mentioned, this is an animated movie, so a lot of this is going to be very, very visual storytelling, and it's going to get kind of fuzzy, and, like, we can't really talk about, if, if you're asking if we like it, if it's a film worth seeing, absolutely, Annie digs it, I dig it, it's a piece of anime film history, definitely worth checking out, worth picking up. However, if you're on the fence about it, uh, one a couple things to mention. Uh, this movie is kind of messed up. It's kind of gritty, kind of nasty. There's a lot of body horror. There's a lot of gore. Uh, there's some sexual violence. There's, you know, some not quite child abuse, but like systematic child abuse. There's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite... Like, it's, it's messy. It's kind of gritty. So if any of that sounds like something that's, you know, not really your speed, this is just your fair warning. So... That being said, I'm going to go ahead and try and sum up the plot. And whoo boy, it is a doozy. So, Akira. 30 years ago, a apparent nuclear explosion started World War III. And the actual source of that explosion was a psychic child by the name of Akira. Now, since then, there's been reconstruction, and our story focuses on Neo-Tokyo, a reconstructed super metropolis of uh Tokyo, which resembles very much kind of that Judge Dredd kind of city. You know, you've got the super super metro blocks. You've got all kinds of abandoned and, you know, derelict highways and street corners. And a lot of our primary characters come from this motorcycle gang. Um, two of our primary characters are Shotaro Kaneda and Tetsuo Shima. And they are a pair of orphans who are... At the tail end of high school, they're going to a vocational school, they're considered delinquents, and they run a motorcycle gang. And Tetsuo is kind of the eternal younger brother. You know, he has that really bad, he's really antsy, he's really angry. Kanada has this really sick, super iconic custom red bike. And, you know, Tetsuo just says, and that's kind of the crux driving point of the force, is they get in a street fight. Well, not a, it is a street fight, technically. Yeah, but it is a street the, the, fight. Well, okay, it's a fight on the street, on motorcycles. So they get in a fight with a rival biker gang called the Clowns. In the middle of this kind of greater context of corruption charges against the government, massive protests, and this great civil upheaval, which kind of permeates the background, but is never directly connected to the, uh, to the events of the plot. Uh, meanwhile, we're coming up on the year 2019. Next year, the Olympics are going to be hosted here in Neo-Tokyo. So there's a giant construction pro uh, project to build up the new stadium and so on. And it's being built over the ruins of a lot of old, destroyed, messed up stuff, including the remains of Akira. Which, by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, Annie, but in the dub, I think they, they call it Akira all the time, right? Yeah, they do. 
They do. Yeah. So I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to say Akira. That's what sounds natural to me. So as they get into the fight, they're chased away by the coming of the cops. And Tetsuo gets into an accident where he almost crashes into this childlike figure, which is uh, Takashi, who is a psychic child from the 30 years ago era of Akira, who is now like this wrinkled, like old man in a child's body, but still with this childish mind. And he is a member of a trio of psychics that used to include Akira. And there's this hinted like government program where the Japanese government was recruiting and raising and nurturing and containing and controlling these psychic people who were presumably meant to be weapons of war. It's never really clear, but there's definitely a military bent to it. And so you've got that kind of child abduction, you know, Halo super soldier child thing going on. And so he crashes into them. He's injured at the scene. The military disperse the gangs and pick up uh, Tetsuo and take him to hospital. And he, whether through the accidental content, contact with Takashi or by his own nature, they don't know, but he is starting to develop psychic powers. And he is developing them at a frightening rate that matches or like has many similarities to Akira, which is scary because Akira was an apocalyptic event. So the rest of it's kind of fuzzy, but there's kind of two pairings, I want to say. I don't want to say relationships, but pairings. Um, Tetsuo has Kaori, who is kind of his girlfriend slash, you know, shaggy dog, I guess it would also be a word there. And uh, Kaneda is smitten with Kei, who is a revolutionary. So, long story short, because... It's just, it's all, it, it feels very vignette and there's so many different things happening that aren't necessarily the plot itself. But they go, uh, Kaneda joins up with the revolutionaries, goes to extract Tetsuo. He's there to rescue them. They're there to try and, like, seize on this government asset. It's, it's a rescue, essentially. Meanwhile, Tetsuo's powers are going crazy. He's, and he's internalizing that rage of his that, you know, little brother syndrome and becoming this psychic powerhouse of just destruction and death, culminating in him digging up Akira, who has been turned into like little medical slices, setting up in the arena, and you get this big climactic showdown between him and Kaneda, where he turns into a giant mutant baby, and then the psychics come together, bring back the resurrected, like, psychic ghost of Akira, and turn them all into a singularity and disappear them off into the ether with the presumption that they'll come back someday maybe that it's more like maybe they're going to another dimension or maybe it's a metaphor for death we don't really know but between where i stopped actually like giving a good summary and here there's just this orgy of blood and violence and death but also there's like some touching stuff where you know, they travel through metaphor inside this glowing white sphere and we look and see the memories and the relationships that form. And then it ends on kind of a hopeful note with the sun shining through the light returning to Neo Tokyo after it has been purged. And that's kind of where we go. So how'd I do, Annie? I think that was pretty damn good for everything that happened. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> so... That's being said, let's let's go to you now, and we're gonna go to our initial incisions here. Da 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 da. 
theme music so we're gonna go to our initial incision we're gonna get some reactions from you because i, I want to hear your reaction to this because like this is a piece of like nerd history this is something that you know people like me and my ilk my filthy weeb scum ilk have seen a million times and like it's kind of boiler stock but you have never seen this before so i really want to hear just like what were your impressions what how did this movie speak to you and like what did you like like let's, let's just go Op- open prompt open prompt open prompt um, oh my god, this movie is something else. This is an absolutely astounding work of art. Um, and I say that coming from the position of being an art historian, because that's what I do. Uh, I was like totally astounded by this movie. Um, the amount of work that it seemed like they would have to do to get this film into production, because the animation is so subtle, it's so detailed, and the plot is also very, very nuanced. Like, I was just astounded by the amount of work that they would have to do to get this out. Um, so that was kind of what I was coming from. They're also exploring some very deep themes about urbanization and crime and how you come back from World War Three. What happens? Uh, what does an authoritarian government look like? But also, what does it look like for citizens in that to kind of take agency for themselves? And they're also exploring violence. Like, what is the nature of violence? Um, and what kind of effect does that have on the characters themselves? The nature is so, blood. Oh, the nature is blood. Um, but there's so much here. It's such a rich text. It's such a rich text. I'm really glad that you um, wanted us to watch this, because I think this was a very, very interesting film for me. So, But how about you? Because I want to let you have time to wax grandiloquent about it. <laughs> Well, I don't want to take up too much time, but like you said, yeah. the an- the animation is absolutely stellar here. Although, having seen this a couple of times and not, like, having a fresh eye, not, well, not a fresh eye, but having, you know, having, having an animator's perspective. Right. It's not quite as mind-blowing. It, it is a, still a marvelous piece of work, and it is just a huge amount of man-hours into this movie. It's crazy. I think it took like five years to produce or something. We tried looking that up and we couldn't really find solid numbers on when production began. But um, I can see kind of how it's done. And there are some shots that blow my mind even more. And some shots that are just kind of, yeah, okay. And what's interesting to me is this time I watch it, I really started to notice a couple artifacts of its age. There's a lot, you can tell very easily that it's, composited using cells because there's a lot of shots where you can see shadows underneath the foreground elements the the sheer artistry of it is incredible and i will geek out about the most random shots like a lot of people they'll remember the shot where you know tetsuo was transforming into the giant baby and like that's a great shot but a shot that really stands out to me is when you have the disc at the olympic stadium tilt up and go down and you have these giant cables spewing steam and Going out, like, I get blown away by stuff like that. Because in that one, there's a notably higher frame rate. There's a couple shots that are on twos. But it was... And the the main thing I actually took away from this viewing as, like, a fresh thing is I forgot how quiet this movie is. And I think it's probably quieter in the sub than it is in the dub. Because, you know, you remember that really iconic music that... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah, you remember that music, and you get, 
or like the kind of chanting with the creepy dolls which great scene by the way gonna come back to that in likes but you remember those moments but what you don't remember is scenes like when tetsuo goes up to the orbital cannon and he destroys it in the void of space and it's completely silent uh you don't remember shots like you know there's a lot there's so many quiet shots and it's it, 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 this this film has a lot of space. This is a two-hour-long movie. And I, I think it's made worse by the fact that I think... And this isn't a knock against the film, but kind of a sign of changing st times and standards. But there's too many fade cuts. There's too many fades to blacks. And like it slows down the pace of the whole thing. But, you know, it's meditative. Like, this was actually a little hard to get through just because of the sheer length of it. But... I never feel like it's because I'm not engaging with the content. It's just like there's too much. There's, I, I need to take a breather, you know? Yeah, which I think is part of the point of the film, too. Like, it does a really, really wonderful job of visualizing what it's like to be in Neo-Tokyo, to be in the city. And the city is just kind of this overwhelming sea of signs that you're being bombarded with and asked to engage with kind of technically in a very short period of time. And I think that it's sort of meant to kind of simulate that, um, to reproduce it for the viewer, to have them feel overwhelmed. So Annie, I want to get your thoughts on something. And we're going to go into likes, but this is a little something I learned about you doing this podcast with you. So you're a bit of a motorhead. Tell us about the motorcycles. Oh God, the motorcycles are so beautiful. Um, they're really, really beautiful. Um, they're almost like the light cycles from Tron, but they're far more detailed. Um, they resemble actually, I'd say probably contemporary designs more than what you would see like in 80s Harley Davidson or um, hell, even like racing bikes from that period. So it's a very forward thinking movie in terms of the motorcycle design itself. Also, um, some interesting stuff. I think it's... Um, Kaneda's bike has yeah. a cannon sticker on it, so it looks like that may have been a racing motorcycle that he stole at one point. Is that what we're supposed to read from that? Because it has a lot of advertising on the bicycle itself, which it, it you see in be. bike racing. Actually, speaking okay. of just random little beat, it's one thing I did notice. Um, actually, two things. One, I noticed at the jukebox, there's a little of the Doors album cover. Yeah. I just caught that for just a split second. But another Cream thing I caught... The Who are also on there. Yeah. Another thing I caught is there is a single shot where you're like looking at some of the medical machines or something, and the focus is on the left of the shot. I think you're looking at Tetsuo or something, but there's a there's like a warning label or something, and it just says "do shit." It's great. I didn't see that. I didn't see it. It would take. I'd have to watch the whole damn thing to get that shot number for you, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, but also like. I also want your comment on, like, because I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, like, how did the violence and motors motorcycles intersect for you here? Because this is one of those really iconic things that's really talked about in this movie is the bike scenes. And you're, you're kind of describing, like, the bikes in a technical kind of way. And I, I, I dig that, but also, like... I want to gush about this, but I think that this is something that you probably want to gush about as well. Are you talking about, like, the way that they aestheticize movement? Um, and then also, like, some of, like, the... 
not just the light trails coming off the bikes, because that's fun, but also the, um, what is that signature move that we were talking about? Oh, the power slide. The power slide. Like, um, that becomes a kind of a signature movement, you were telling me. Like, that influences multiple different creative groups who are making, not just anime, but animation in the United States as well. And I think the reason why it's so influential is because the animation is so solid. Like, this is somebody who's watched someone on a motorcycle before um, and knows how those move, but also knows how to translate that into the visual. Like, that's just fucking crazy so what did you want to say about the um the power slide well no did i didn't want to, something I, well that's 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 the iconic power slide if you're not yeah. an animator or an animation like groupie junkie i those both sound so disparaging i'm sorry <laughs> but you know if, if you're not we a love geek, you. if you're not a huge nerd <laughs> like me if you're a huge nerd like me you probably already know what i mean when i talk about the akira power slide um but what i actually kind of wanted to refer to was the violence and kineticism of the bikes because there is violence in this movie and it, it in the later half of the movie it's all about you know guns and this kind of psychic crushing overwhelming force but in the beginning of the movie in the first i'd say third of the movie all the violence is done at about 80 miles an hour and it's kind of crazy jousting too there's motorcycle jousting which is just Again, fucking awesome. I, and I wouldn't call that jousting. I'd call that chicken. Really? No, because they're they're on they're on the line heading towards each other. They don't have weapons out. They run towards each other, and then the uh, clown yeah. slides that's off his point. bike. Yeah, that's like a good point. Years. But ah, uh, just it's so hard to talk about that scene because it's it's all in a visual rhythm. There's a rhythm of the lights. There's a rhythm of the trails. The trails fade in a particular way, and they convey the idiosyncrasies of the movie, of the not of the movie of the movement, because yeah. it's not just like oh we go in a straight line. It's not the Tron light cycle. It's like the fishtail as you accelerate out. Like that's shown in. So you're given these movements that are faster than you can follow, but you're given this beautiful visual signifier that lets you follow after the fact. Yeah, so they're kind of like drawing attention to their own artistry in the piece too, which I really, really like. Was there anything you didn't like about this movie? I'm actually going to say no. I think this is pretty much damn near perfect when you're attempting to work out how you communicate a kind of post-apocalyptic storyline through animation. Um, I was not expecting the levels of violence because I think that I still have my own kind of like almost a stereotype of animation, like... I think a lot of people stereotype animation as being for kids' films, and so they don't expect this sort of adult content to be communicated through animation. So I did have a little bit of that. Um, so the violence was kind of like a little bit disorienting. There's a term but, for that. Yeah. Uh, it's actually called, and this is kind of tropey, but it's called the animation age ghetto. And it's this presumption that we have as a society that animation is for children. And that's actually where you get a lot of things like that's why people are still taking their kid one of my favorite stories i've ever heard is someone took like their four-year-old to see the dark knight and the guy's going hey uh maybe don't bring your kid into this and the woman's like well whatever whatever and then you know 30 minutes later she's coming out uh, screaming i don't like clown man i don't like clown man you know but it's this presumption that 
the medium dictates the audience and that's just not true and this was kind of underground like i said this was nerdy otaku shit for many years before like anime is kind of blown up again recently with like a second renaissance or whatever you want to call it oh yeah so it's come back but back in the day this was for adults and i mean it always has been in japan but this was kind of one of the first big things to penetrate the market since animation became for kids i want to say in like the 60s maybe yeah, I mean, Disney is popularizing stuff in the 40s with animation as well. Like, I think Snow White is actually a product of the Snow late White 40s. was 1933, I think. Oh, really? That's yeah, really no, early. Snow, Snow That's White's even really earlier early. than I thought. No, because the first feature film was uh, Lady Reiniger's Adventures of Prince Achmed. That was 1929. Right. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, we'll get into some animation history at some point. And I, I've kind of covered some of the things that I didn't quite like. And none of that's really a mark against the film like that's just a product of its time and so on another thing i really like and this is kind of on the fence about this but the portrayal of psychics like it's it's kind of it's this this is the seinfeld of psychics which sounds really funny when i say it like that but all the tropes can you explain what you mean by that <laughs> okay there's a lot of people who think seinfeld isn't funny because so many sitcoms have come after it and built upon the work that it does that to them, an audience that has grown up with the people who have built upon the, you know, stood on the backs of giants right. with Seinfeld, think like, ah, this is just like a boring, bog-standard comedy, like, sitcom. So, like, everything you've ever seen about, like, an anime psychic or, like, you know, oh, the nosebleed when they do stuff or, like, the impressions being pushed into walls or things, like, being crushed into balls – that's all in this movie. I, there might have been things that did it before this, but this is th this is the one that broke the mold and made the new mold. So in a way, it's refreshing to see it just be there and be kind of pure, but in another way, it's a little bit hard to see because it's something that's been built upon and toyed with. And actually, I'm going to say one more thing that I love is... How much is done without dialogue? So much is done without dialogue. There's just mm. looks and gestures and movements and reactions. Like, the entire motorcycle fight sequence against the clowns. No dialogue. None. And it's gorgeous. And you can see the dynamics shift and change. And you can see the different stages and progressions of that fight. Yeah, and you almost don't need dialogue there, right? Because you have gesture, you have their hair blowing in the wind. Um, you have all of these really, really small details that kind of come together to make this greater than the sum of its parts. And um, I heard that Akira was probably going to be made into a live action movie at some point, and they scrapped that. I thank God that they scrapped that, because I think that the animation is partly what makes this movie what it is. It's the medium through which it's communicated that makes Akira such a fantastic film. Like putting this in a live action movie would be very expensive, but there's so much that's lost when you're not seeing the artist's hand at work making people's hair move at random times and their facial expressions, their gestures. Yeah, there'd be so much that would be lost if they did that. Actually, that the Akira live-action movie project, that's like a rumor that comes back every like three years or so. 
Like a, a, a studio exec is always looking at going, you know, I bet I could sell this. Um, you know who I would love? Actually, I, I, I got to ask, I got to ask you before I put pictures in your mind, but if you had to get someone to do the live action adaptation, who would you get? I have no idea, and I'd have to rely on somebody who has done fantasy fiction to a certain extent. But I don't know. It's post-apocalyptic as well. There's a part of me that says, like, okay, let's go find Ryan Johnson, who did um, Looper, to do this. But his aesthetics are too understated for this. So I don't know who I would choose. Who would you pick? Uh, well, my first thought was I want to get the Wachowskis to work together with the original mangaka. But my second, because the, the Wachowskis do like yeah. their Japanese, but option two, which I'm kind of digging more now, um, George Miller. Oh, yeah. You can yeah, see that. Yeah, that would be a very good choice. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Because you need somebody who's familiar with the color palette as well, because that's another thing about Akira that makes it so striking is the color itself. Red. Just red. Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Like... That's an interesting thing. Um, the blood in this movie is fairly prominent, but it's got that kind of scarlet, like, hammer horror blood to it. It's not crimson. It's bright scarlet, and it's very significant. I think very little else in the movie is actually red, except for Kaneda and his bike. Yeah. Um, Tetsuo has a red cape, but when there's red on screen, it's very striking. Yeah, which, again, I think that's... That's very much intentional. And apparently there was obviously a lot of um, individual shots that had to be pieced together to put this movie together. But what a lot of people don't know is that there were colors that had to be invented to do this film as well, too. So they're, they're being innovative through their use of color, not only in the film itself. They're inventing new colors to include in this piece. So... Yeah. Are you being metaphorical here, or is there some like little piece you read on this? Because I, uh, I actually don't know what you're talking about. No, I actually read this, that they had to invent some new colors to um, help create the film, to help color the film itself. Like new cell paint mixes and stuff. Basically, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Because th it also goes to, like, you know, um, bloody, uh, like, Terry Pratchett stuff like ah there's the eighth color like you know I was just yeah. I want I want to make sure we're on the same page there oh yeah um oh the the horror elements in this as well the, uh, okay t yeah t tell me about tell me about the teddy bear tell me about the teddy bear okay well <laughs> Kanye loves the teddy bear Kanye loves the teddy bear so much it's on the college dropout album. But um, in the film, the teddy bear is just this conglomeration of different objects that are brought together, and then it becomes monstrously large and intimidating, and one of its hands appears to be some kind of snake, but it also growls like a panther. Like, it was just absolutely fucking insane um, when he's kind of having this... Tetsuo's having a very strange vision. Um, also, in terms of violence... Tetsuo has this one moment where he's on the ground and he sees his bowels drop out of his body. Oh, so, like, God, he's eviscerated. Yeah. Which, did you see that? I did. And actually, I want to, I just want to compliment, not that shot, but that sequence of shots. Yeah. The, 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 that, entire, that entire sequence where Tetsuo is slowly losing his mind and becoming more aggressive and more desperate and isolated and disoriented. Um, 
but one of the most brilliant sequences of shots is you have the shot where Tetsuo looks down, like you're looking down on Tetsuo and you see his guts fall out of him. And there's too many guts. It's just, it, there's a huge volume. And it's like that, like I said, it's that scarlet, orangey, pinkish, red color that signifies kind of important things here. But then you cut away to something else and you cut back to him and you see him scooping at them, but now we're back in reality and we can't see what he's seeing. And that implies so much more than you could possibly ever animate. And that's such a brilliant thing. The entire idea of him losing his mind is presented so well. And it's not clear how much of it is him and how much of it is like this weird sibling rivalry slash attack from the other three psychics. Yeah, and also what seems to have been done to him, like, is it ever indicated when he's in the hospital bed that he's been given something as well? Because I thought that that was part of what the doctor, that the doctor gives him some kind of drug compound. They are drugging them, but it's implied, at least in other points in the script, that a lot of the drugs are just suppressants, like to keep the powers in check. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's weird too. Yeah. Huh. But I just, I just want to also call attention to the scene where the, the because there's the three psychics that, uh, and they're represented by a toy car, a toy bunny, and a teddy bear. And there's a scene where tiny, tiny versions of them crawl up on the bed and then climb up on his pillow. And it's such a slow sequence. And he just goes to reach for them and grabs them in his hand and the music stops. And they're yeah. gone. It's such a brilliant sequence. And that's before we know that they're psychic progression, not progression, projections, projections of the yeah. other three psychics. And it's just, I, go, I, I, I think we should probably get away from impressions because all our impressions are going to be, this is so amazing. Oh my God, I love this part. So let's yeah. you go do some deep cuts. Yeah, let's do some deep cuts. Well, Annie, I think that means it's time for Cause of Death. We're such fucking nerds. Final report. The cause of death. All right. So, um, what do you think this movie's about? Okay. I know that you have your own distinctive reading of what Akira is doing, but um, I really kind of see it actually as sort of like a, a treatise on this concept called global urbanization. There's a lot of people who've been working on this. There's a bunch of um, spatial theorists who work on it. So Oren Yiftichel is one of them, if you're interested in looking this up. This guy invents this concept. Um, sorry, planetary urbanization was what I meant to say. Um, Yiftichel comes up with the concept of gray space, too, which kind of goes with it. So planetary urbanization is a concept that Isaac Asimov had talked about in some of his novels early on and that scholars develop later on to say like well the whole planet's urbanizing so now we have to ask these questions about what is a city what are its inhabitants are they citizens are they not citizens and Yiftichel kind of comes in and adds in this theory of gray space which is the idea that there's light space and dark space and then there's space in between 
The dark space is the space of illegality and crime and um, disorder, quote unquote. And the light space is the space of the law, government, quotes, organization. And the gray space is everything in between. So um, I really kind of see these characters as working within that gray space. They are going between the law and illegality and setting up their own system. Um, And I think also this film is asking questions about what it means for these characters to be citizens in this city. Like there is a ton of violence that these young people witness. Um, And violence is something which Yiftichel and other theorists talk about as being kind of inherent to planetary urbanization. Yeah. So that's kind of what I see going on in this film. I realize that that may sound really kind of weirdly abstract, but it helped me to understand this very strange theory. So yeah. Okay. How about you? What was your kind of deeper cut on it? I mean, I have a couple different things I think about, but I think the one that most fits kind of the overall thing, because I, th- I think this film is primarily about the relationship between Tetsuo and Kaneda and the kind of inevitable friction that they were always heading towards. And I think if you look at it in a very broad sense, it's about not necessarily coping with, but accepting a change of relationship. And what I'm seeing a lot of is this idea that, you know, change has happened and both parties are not yet accepting of it. And there's this death and rebirth and this scouring and, you know, burn down, burn and regrowth that goes on with Tokyo. But I think the most telling moment is when, and here's the thing that surprises me, is how long the final climactic showdown takes. It takes like two days, right? Because it goes through night and day, day, night and day again, I think, and then into the whole thing. But I think the most telling react, I think the most telling interaction is when uh, Tetsuo is on top of the like crushed, dome that used to house akira with all the little slices of him around him and tetsuo comes up and meets him for the first time in a while and they have this lovely little banter where they try to operate under the constraints of the old relationship they're still like big brother little brother protector bullied kid and they kind of go through a fast forward and it's such a charming moment they are such good friends in that moment i really feel I, like i feel them I feel that they are friends, that they are brothers, that they are lifelong friends like that. And they just go through like a just quick snapshot, like this really fast slice of where the friction came from and how it boils back up again. And then they are antagonistic towards each other again. And I think that's kind of what it is. And at the end, it's about Kaneda accepting that Tetsuo is gone. And this could be a different way. It could be the death of Tetsuo, it could be Tetsuo moving on, becoming his own person, but whatever it is, there is a change in their fundamental relationship that is metaphorically reflected in how Tokyo has dealt with the change of government, with the coup, with the change of architecture from just the scouring of the old things, because the old structures no longer hold or are no longer, they do not conform to the new reality. So that's kind of my read. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really, really good. Um, 
Hi, Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hi. He says hi. Um, and yeah, kind of seeing their relationship as sort of a metaphor for what's going on in broader culture, too, I think is really important. Because I think this film is trying to address some of the stuff of like, how do we deal with the aftermath of Hiroshima? But also, it seems to be like it's trying to address some Cold War fears about World War Three, potentially, and this fear that basically World War Three is the war that kind of ends, quote, civilization as we know it. So, like, the old order sort of representing those pre-existing ideas of civilization that people had. Um because this, like, a lot of the younger characters represent a lot of the fears that we see coming up in the late 80s and early 90s. Fear of crime. Um, there's that old 1950s standard of the biker gang coming back and, like, child criminals, um, truancy, all of that stuff. And I feel like it's kind of trying to wrestle with this history of what happens after you have a nuclear war. Hmm. Yeah. Actually, I think an interesting thing that like I never really picked up on when I saw this when I was younger is the 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 tense backdrop of a city in basically revolution. You know, there is like a corrupt old government uh you know, policies the the the, the government is corrupt. and you've got the uh, by the way, the fantastic uh colonel who is like an author as as close I get I guess as you get to a somewhat benevolent authoritarian dictator. He you know he he goes through a coup because you see the other members of the council are conniving and cowardly and you know uh greedy. You know the rat face one dies like clutching his chest holding on to a suitcase full of bonds. And at the same time though, I think the the overall feeling of a society in flux where there is this violent revolution going on there's this call people are reaching out to all these crazy things like people are grasping onto akira which is the source of devastation and i don't know exactly why it makes me think this but i feel like there's a bit of a vietnam parallel uh yeah yeah no i think that's a good reading of that um, <clears throat> it depends on which political figures you also mean in terms of Vietnam or whether you mean Vietnam itself is kind of like a touchstone for people to come back to that they either have memorialized or actually, you know what, in the case of Vietnam, like, I think that was really kind of a historical turning point for a lot of people. That was the moment where they said like, no more war, like we can't do this anymore at least here in the United States. Um, there are certainly other perspectives about it outside. So, yeah. To me, what's kind of jumping out, and I think what's making me think this, is this idea that you have a people who are basically, it's, it seems from everything I've gotten covered, are in violent conflict with their government. And, you know, I don't want to make yeah. the modern day parallels, but... No, but it's there. Yeah. It's already so, there. Like that, 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 but the, the, the huge protest movement, the anti-war thing, that, I think, because there's, there's, I think, more of a feeling of... It's halfway between mass protest and mass hysteria, which is, I think, what's bringing that imagery to me right now. Because, again, I, I didn't live through it. I wasn't in the States when I was growing up. So I have this weird kind of 
nebulous connection to Vietnam, but I, I'm, I'm still feeling like this is something that is a connection that I'm making. And maybe that won't be a connection that anyone else can really follow, but it's there for me. Um, so I don't think that that's a crazy connection for you to make it all. And one of the other things that I'm thinking about is, um, while this is showing kind of like a spectrum of reactions to the government, um, I think that, you know, like we are supposed to separate these actions out. So the revolutionaries themselves, um, like we are supposed to see them as kind of self-contained versus say, um, the smaller like religious circles that have sprung up in terms of looking to Akira for some kind of answer to what's going on. Um, so I don't know that I see them necessarily as being on the same political spectrum, but they're doing something um, together. I've I've actually just remembered, like I was thinking about this earlier in the film and then I kind of forgot it for a while, but oh my God, the police brutality. Yeah. There is so much police brutality. Like you can specifically see there is, uh, when they're doing the long, wide shot of the office, there is an officer in his cubicle just punching a Beating suspect. Beating a guy. Yeah. 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 No. And when when they beat up the guy who pulls the grenade, yeah. you know, they drag him face down along the floor and there's a trail of blood. Like, it's, it's, but there, in many ways, what I'm actually seeing in kind of the... And again, like, this kind of drops off as the old system is carved away for the new growth. But in the beginning of the film, and it's hard to keep that in your head because it's such a long and dense movie, but the old system, I think, is in its death throes where it's it's being attacked and it's attacking back. And the system, I don't want to say is corrupt, but is like in a defensive, it's cornered. I think that you can say that it is corrupt, though, right? Because, like, a lot of the plot structure is built around doing science experiments on children and um, how that can kind of potentially be used to sustain the government's power. Well, the problem is I would would define that as morally bankrupt, maybe, but not necessarily corrupt. Corrupt, I think, has a very specific and narrow definition. And I'm not sure that the society at large is corrupt. Hmm. In, in the kind of political sense. It's definitely authoritarian. It's wicked and sick and, you know, it's metastasized, but it's not... The the, the politicians, the council is absolutely corrupt. Oh, but yeah. I'm not sure that society is like... It's just like, it's been defined into government. And I want to say another thing that's interesting is, I think an interesting read is the idea that Akira is looking at the space where a person used to be. Because yeah. Akira is not a character. He no. shows up as kind of a ghost, but every single character has a different idea of who Akira is. Uh, Tetsuo sees Akira as this antagonistic force, this demon that's attacking him, and then later as this kind of rival to surpass, almost like supplanting uh, Kaneda. Whereas, you know, Kaneda has no idea who Akira is. You've got these religious figures which are kind of worshipping him as the atom bomb. Meanwhile, you've got the government that sees it as like their dirty little secret or a resource to be mined for power. There's made, like, the scientist, the guy who looks like Albert Einstein, he's he's in awe. He worships Akira. You know, oh, yeah. he, he, he's basically responsible for the destruction of of Neo Tokyo because he could not let the chance to observe an Akira-like figure go by. Because right. the colonel specifically says, if he's out of control, you terminate him. 
Can you mm-hmm. do that? And he, he's wishy-washy about it because he can't. He can't, and that, that's his moral failing. Yeah, I think what you're um, articulating here is the idea of Akira as floating signifier, that is, as something into which a lot of other concepts or constructs are read, which makes that interaction really, really important, right? Like, Akira is already out of control by the time um, Akira acquires power because people are going to place things onto Akira which are not there. So I really like this um, Levi-Straussian analysis that you're doing of Akira. Um, And even the idea of breaking Akira down into component body parts itself, which are kept in jars, like what what do you think was going on with that? Because I'm not fully sure how to think about that. Um, That seems like mummification or okay, something well, like well, that. On, well, on a surface level, on a surface level, it's just, you know, sci-fi trophy bullshit. It's like, oh, you know, we don't know what made him so special, so we'll slice him up and try to isolate it down to the components. Which, in a broader sense, I think is the idea of trying to isolate the properties of myth. Because Akira yeah. is a mythic figure. It is a figure right. who lives in the hearts and minds. Even... 30 years later, because, you know, Neo-Tokyo was dis- Tokyo was destroyed. The cult that is developed around Akira is based on whispers and fragments and nothing. So yeah. the fact is, Akira is such a significant and powerful figure that 30 years later, a child is being worshipped as a god. Yeah. Based on nothing, based on hearsay. That's That's something very powerful, and that's something that they are trying to nail down. It's like... I'd say, like, maybe an appropriate, like, metaphor, if you wanted to try to apply that, would be, like, you know, um, the Shroud of Turin or something like that. Trying to, like, trying to make manifest or make physical the divine. Yeah. That which is intangible. Yeah. Um, Another layer is also that, you know, I I, I hate going back to Randy and Ubermensch, but, like, this idea that if you have these powerful people these powerful and singular people that society will cut them up and try to analyze them because you you look at that you you get so many you know cargo cults around everything you know to the point where people are selling the cargo cult without the success and using that to earn the success you know that's Mm -hmm. the thing that happens is you know you say ah my favorite artist drinks five coffees a day if i drink five coffees a day i'll be like you know they look at everything in isolation because actually here's an interesting thing when we see Akira in the modern age and he's back as like this psychic ghost, which may or may not even be real. I think it's right. also po- it's also possible that he's the psychic projection of the other three psychics because they have yeah. shared memories with him. Yeah. Either way, when you see him, he is like overlaid with all these slices. He's translucent. You can see his blood vessels, his bones, his You can nerves. see through him. Yeah. You know, he, he is the components of his part. And I think that's the difference because the psychics... Ooh, I guess in this reading are also singular Ubermenschian, Randian, blah, 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 blah. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who are stunted by big government. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> but... Oh, no. Don't feed the <laughs> trolls, Silvio. <laughs> no, but, because they, they are literally um, arrested in their development. Yeah, they are. But go, going, <laughs> going past that, but when you look at, they see him as a person. They see all the components together. Whether or not they fully understand or comprehend, if we go with the read that he is their psychic construct, they understand what he is. 
The yeah. scientists and the eggheads and the bean counters do not. They try to look at the components, and it's more than the whole. Right. I mean, <laughs> that uh, it's a bit of a crazy read, but, like, yeah. you can make any No, I think work, it makes kinda. sense. Like, yeah. I, I think it's just such a complicated movie that you can do multiple readings of it, and you're going to come away with something. Yeah. They just wanted order. Mm-hmm. Everybody always just wants order. That leads to disorder and chaos. It's interesting. I don't know. You got any more crazy reads? Like, I feel, I feel like we need one more from you. I've been talking a lot, but I'm, like, the big I anime mean, geek. I mean, you can kind of do, like, a Foucauldian analysis of school through this, like, how the education system works. So, like, Foucault says that basically the education system is used to perpetuate the um, the use and abuse of power and also to kind of, like, almost indoctrinate people into the system itself, into the governmental system, societal system, however you want to read that. Um, what I like about this is that it fails, and it fails super hard, so... Even though these children are being beaten at school by teachers, by other kids, like that one scene, that initiation scene where, what is it the guy says as he slaps all of these kids in order? Do you remember what he says? I do not. Uh, I pull up the movie, but it loses too much momentum. Yeah, no, no, because it was something like basically stating that they need to comply and then using violence to make them do that. So I actually thought that was a pretty interesting read about education itself as potentially um, a form of violence. And I really, really like that. Um, that goes actually very well with Battle Royale. We yeah. kind of hit that note. Actually, inter- interesting thought. Um, except for one or two, the revolutionaries are very young. Um, K is fairly young, and I think Ryu is the oldest, but he's the one who's in service to the corrupt politician. So he's kind of a bridge. He's not really of the revolution, but he is a manipulator slash provocateur of the revolution. So in a way, I think you can also make the read that this is a sick society, that the youth have no, because they do not benefit from the societal structures and the old structures of power, they have no reason to cling to it, which is why you get people, you know, yearning for Akira because Akira is change. Akira is the absolute. And I think that's another read that I want to talk about is this idea that this is all about these characters, these different characters reacting to inevitable and inexorable change. You know, the colonel tries to the colonel tries to control it. The scientist tries to study it. Tetsuo tries to maintain what was good about the past he tries to you know cull some survivors from it but he can't mm-hmm. you know and, and tetsuo, the revolutionaries try to make change yeah and tetsuo is change yeah and change yeah. is very apathetic towards people like you and i had been talking about this for a couple minutes earlier on um in this film there's so many people who are trying to be agents of change and change does not give a fuck who you are it's going to bowl you over at certain points, kind of like what it does with um, the members of that sect who are worshipping Akira. Like, we see that the main sort of, like, prophet of Akira die. 
Like, we watch them fall off the bridge. And, yeah, Chain's just kind of apathetic towards you. Doesn't yeah. care. Chain don't give a fuck. Nope. No, it does not. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up for this. So, closing thoughts. I really, really like this film. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It's um, extraordinarily violent. And also contains a lot of scenes with violence towards children because that's part of the subject matter. But I also think that there's something politically and aesthetically prescient about Akira that makes it very much worth watching and worth engaging with. So, if anybody's listening, which I hope there are a couple people, we hope that you guys watch this because it is so, so worth two hours of your time to sit down and watch Akira. Take that as somebody, like coming from someone who has never seen this before and who has a very limited background in anime in general. Well, I'll say three hours now. <laughs> three hours, yeah. Including this, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that this is a gorgeous movie and there's nothing quite like it. It's just... And I don't think there ever will be anything quite like this movie again. It's just breathtaking in its scale and in its ambition. And I have never seen so much light and shadow and smoke. And just, it is, and actually, that this is a, a modern filmmaking comparison I'm gonna make here. This is the most beautiful destruction of a city that you will see that is not inspired by 9-11 footage. Oh my god. In, in, in a way, it's kind of sterile, whereas, like, since 9-11, we've had all these movies where it's, like, it's all about smoke and debris falling and the chaos, but when Akira destroys something, it's elegant and silent and beautiful and utterly terrifying. And I think that's worth checking out. It's an aesthetically different movie, and it's something that doesn't really happen today. I hope you guys have enjoyed this one. Feel free to, you know, like, comment, subscribe, uh, hit us up on iTunes, leave us a review, send us some comments to the email. You can hit us at, at ontheslab at gmail.com. I'll leave that in the show notes so that you guys know have the actual URL because I don't have it on hand right now. And, you know, tell us you like it. Tell us you didn't. Disagree with us. You know, uh, we've got a Facebook page. Get to us there. I've been Sylvia Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter. Maybe yell at me a little bit. You know, at DoubleDocMD. Well, I've been Annie Neller. And you guys can find me on Instagram at, at Lights and Music. That's Lights, E-N, Music, all one word, and no caps. Um, yeah, send us an Instagram. Send us something on Twitter or an email. Because we'd love to hear back from you guys. How did you like Akira? Or did you like Akira? All right, so please get back to us. Have a great week. This has been On The Slab. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.